Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'd like to take a moment to clarify salvation as I taught it last week there in case there was any confusion. As always, I encourage you to reach out to me. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you want to run through some things, you disagree with something, great, come see me. Um, But basically, the point I was trying to make is you are saved, past tense. You are being saved, present, in ongoing and continuous action, and you will be saved in the future. In verse 8, however, verses 5 and 8, more specifically of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is using two special words in tandem, which forms what grammarians call a a periphrastic verb. A bunch of big things to, to basically say that Paul is putting emphasis on this ongoing, continuous action of salvation. He's not describing, however, a past tense, already done, completely done action as most of our modern day English translations make it seem, by grace you have been saved. Um, Rather, it should be, by grace, you are being saved. Now, here's an analogy for you. Imagine yourself in a storm out at sea. Your boat is sinking. You put a little um, distress call out. The Coast Guard is coming for you. At what point, I would ask you, are you saved? Are you saved when you get on the lifeboat? Are you saved as you're making your journey back and they warm you up with a blanket and give you food and make sure, check all your vitals? Or are you saved when you step out on land? This is sort of, if you will, imagine the process of salvation. So much in the same way, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, he's not talking about the action of getting onto the boat initially, or he's not even really talking about stepping out of the boat onto land. He's talking about this journey, this process, this continuous salvation and being saved. It's an ongoing thing. Imagine, if you will, being on that lifeboat, journeying to your final destination, glory, that is land. So here you have it. For by grace, although you have been saved and ultimately will be saved, right now you are continually being saved through faith. That's the emphasis of verses 5 and 8. Now I want to look at something new. I indeed want to bless us with the scriptural nugget that is found in the Greek word for save. Sozo. If you want to write it down, it's S-O-Z-O with two little dashes over the O's is kind of how we write it in, into English. If you've never done a study on it, buckle up. Sozo. I'm going to read this from Thayer's Lexicon. Here are the definitions, the different uses, biblical uses of this word in the New Testament. To make, I mean, excuse me, to save a suffering one from perishing or disease. To make well, to heal, to restore to health. To preserve one who is in danger of destruction to save or to rescue. To save a suffering one from perishing or disease, to make well, heal, restore to health, to preserve one who is in danger of destruction, to save or rescue. So what does it mean then to be being saved by grace? Well, certainly more than just getting to heaven when you die, and certainly more than just escaping death as we discussed last week. Most believers, unfortunately, only think that Jesus came for a spiritual benefit. 
to save them from future death and destruction and keep them from going to hell. But the scriptures tell us that Jesus also came to deliver us from this present evil age. Galatians 1.4 says, Jesus gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. So there's a, sure, there's a future spiritual benefit, but Christ Jesus came to save us from what is going on around us. Not just the evil world to come, but from this present evil age. So to basically, so to be biblically saved basically means that there are earthly effects on our lives today. Not only are you free from future judgment and wrath of God, but being saved also includes the ability to resist temptations, to be set free from demonic attacks and oppression, receive healing in our physical bodies. Now, um, I want you to see a few of these. You can put a place marker in Ephesians 2, but if you will turn to Luke chapter 6, I want to just give you kind of a survey of how the different uses of this word sozo are used. While you're turning there, understand that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul does not say, by grace you have salvation. By grace you, ha- you are being saved, more literally. Understand that there is another word in Greek for salvation altogether. That is soteria. We get our fancy word, the study of salvation, soteriology, or soteriology, okay? There's a different word. Paul does not say, by grace, you have salvation. He says, by grace, you are being saved, and there's a reason for that, because I want you to understand the importance of this word, sozo. Let's look at a few examples of how this word is used in its broad context. Luke chapter 6, verse 9. The background here is that Jesus is in a synagogue on the Sabbath, His um, disciples were picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees are all bent out of shape because they're doing work on the Sabbath. And here he comes, and they've got eyes on this man who's got this withered hand, right? You're familiar with the account. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, verse 9, said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save sozo, a life or to destroy it. So the context here of save is healing. Jesus wanted to save or heal this man's life by healing, by extension, healing his hand. Flip to chapter 7, verse 48 of Luke. Background here, there's a woman in Luke's account. He just says sinner. We don't know um, some of the other gospels talk about a Mary of Bethany anointing. Some believe it's Mary Magdalene. Magdalene doesn't really matter. But here we have a woman who's anointing the feet of Jesus. Verse 38 of the chapter, you can see that for yourself. But look on down to 48. It says, Then he said to her, this is Jesus, Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has sozo you. Go in peace. So the context in this one is forgiveness of sins. Healing of a withered man's hand 
forgiveness of sins. Chapter 8, verse 12. We're in the parable of the sower and the seeds. Jesus says, Those beside the road are those that have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that the devil will so that they will not believe and be sozoed. So when the devil snatches the word away from them, they're being deceived. Jesus says they will not be saved. The context here is of impending peril. Let's look at a couple more. Verse 36 of the same chapter. This is about the Gerasene demoniacs. Other accounts say there's two, um, but some 2,000 pigs went into the water after Jesus delivered a demon-possessed man or men. Verse 36 says, Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been sozo, made well. Context here is of demonic deliverance. 48. Jesus on his way to Jairus, a synagogue official's house, he gets touched by someone in the cloak. You remember the story. She reaches out, and Jesus says to her after he said, who touched me? They had this whole dialogue. Daughter, your faith has sozo you go in peace. The faith has made you well. The context here is of healing. One more. Verse 50. Jesus now, again, continuing on his way, he gets called out and says, don't worry about it. Your daughter's already dead. And Jesus says in 50 to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe she will be made well or sozo. So just as a quick recap, this word, just in the short space of three different chapters, was used for physical healing, was used of forgiveness of sins, was used of salvation from impending peril, was used of demonic deliverance, was used to save someone or to heal them, and lastly, resurrection from the dead. So when Paul says, by grace, you have this ongoing saving that is happening in your body, understand that it's not just this future spiritual component. He's saying you have demonic deliverance, you have physical healing, you have salvation and, and salvation from impending peril. He wants you to understand that, that resurrection from the dead is a reality because in Christ Jesus, by His grace, we are saved from all of these things. Sozo healing from danger, demons, disease, and death. I made a nice little group of words starting with D for you. Danger, demons, disease, and death. Danger, demons, disease. We can say that, right? Danger, demons, disease, and death. That's what he came to save us from. By grace, you're saved from all of those things. And it's not just the New Testament that supports this idea. We talked about these verses in Sunday school just this morning. It parallels quite nicely how healing and forgiveness often go together. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your what? Forgives, heals. Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. The end of the verse says, by his stripes, you're healed. Sin, healing, often sandwiched together. That's what Christ came to save us from. Now, we often say, great, we're saved from our sin. I want you to know that according to the New Testament, Jesus came to bring physical healing. Do we walk in it all the time? Absolutely not. Do I fail? Absolutely. In the same way, I also sin. 
I don't want to sin. I don't want to be sick either. But I want you to know that according to Scripture, Christ Jesus came to save you from both of those. Not just your sin. So next time you see that word save in Scripture, pause and reflect on the truth that Jesus died to save you from danger, demons, disease, and death. Glory. For the Son of Man came to seek and to sozo those who are lost. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be sozoed. All right, verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I just realized we didn't read this whole passage, as tradition should have it. (laughs) I'll pick up in verse 8. Let's start at 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's the verse we had in discussion, really tying in off of last week. We didn't quite get through everything I wanted to. 9. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. If salvation was the accomplishment of man in any way, God being the all-knowing said, man will boast about it, won't they? We can't have that. But under God's plan, under his knowledge, he alone receives the glory. Now, for those that are exegetes and familiar with the scriptures, may be thinking, well, how does this reconcile with James? Well, if you came to Sunday school, um, a few, I think in the last few months, I, we discussed this question recently. Not that you should feel bad about not coming, or should you? Did I I make that awkward enough? (laughs) Good. We have a good time. 8.30 for adults here at the church. Uh, I believe the objections raised about um, works, faith, salvation, are completely resolved when you take James chapter 2 in its proper context. And in order to do that, we can spend some time on that this morning. Um, Yeah, why don't we just go there? James chapter 2. I've gone back and forth about whether you want to hear all this, but truthfully, I'm sure there's some that may have wrestled with this at some time, so we'll just take time to to go through it. But James is emphasizing, in my opinion, that genuine faith in Christ will produce a changed life, a changed result, and works will flow because of our faith in Christ Jesus. I do not believe that James 2 is at odds with sole fide, grace or faith alone. Instead, these verses contrast true faith and false faith, genuine faith and fake faith. So, uh, it you know, often people will look to James chapter 2. Let's just start there and, and we can cherry pick like a lot of people do. Look at 24. A man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, there you have it. We can go home. <laughs> do your works, you heathens. <laughs> All right, but let's, let's read it in context. Start at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, if you want to highlight a verse as kind of the summary of the whole context, 18 would be much more fitting than verse 24. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without the works. And I will show you my faith by my works. That last phrase being the important part. You believe that God is one, you do well, and the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that without faith, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So now we see that, that our faith is perfected by doing the things that we do for Christ, for God. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, that's faith first, belief. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. When you look at this passage as a whole, James is trying to say and express that if you have genuine faith in Christ, what should naturally follow is doing good things for him. Context is essential. Genuine faith is proven by results in salvation. Calvary Chapel's theologian and pastor Don Stewart says it this way. Paul teaches that faith alone saves, while James emphasizes that the faith that saves is not alone. That is, a person that is justified by faith will have good works in his or her life, which brings us to the flip side of that coin, a very uncomfortable flip side of that coin. If a person claims to be a believer but has no good works in his or her life, then he most likely does not have genuine faith. You see, anyone could say they believe in God, James 2.19. Even the demons believe in God. But true faith is proved because of the results of good works. Now, that does not mean that if you do not do good things, you're not going to go to heaven. Your faith is personal. It's between you and God. What James is emphasizing here is to believers and saying that if you truly believe in Christ Jesus, then you should have evidence of that bubbling out and flowing out of your life. There should be good deeds that are constantly happening, not as a way to earn your salvation, because you can't boast in it. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, it's by grace alone or by faith alone grace alone, so that no man may boast. God doesn't want us boasting. Can you imagine if there was works as part of the equation, how much we'd have to hear about it? You probably don't, you know, we don't even have to imagine. You can just go to Facebook and Twitter, right? Oh, watch as I give $10 to this homeless person. Jesus says, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. Salvation doesn't come through any other means than grace. Not through money, not through fame, 
not through intelligence, not even beauty. It's the same with works. You cannot earn it. The ground is level at the foot of the cross by God's design. So if works don't improve our standing with God, why do we even bother? Well, Paul hints at it in the next verse in Ephesians chapter 2, so I know we're going a little bit longer, but I want to finish up there if we can in verse 10 of chapter 2. This is the understanding that I have, the Holy Spirit gave to me while I was looking at this passage. Why even bother with works? Paul turns our attention to being created, for we are his workmanship, which is the Greek word poema. The idea is that we're his beautiful poem. The Jerusalem Bible translation says that we are his work of art. I don't know how that works for your self-esteem. You're feeling a little bit down, a little discouraged, a little underappreciated. God Almighty, the creator of heavens and earth, made you his work of art. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. You're God's work of art made in His Son to do good things. That's one of your purposes. We do good works because we were made by His good works. You remember in the garden, God made Adam and He said it was good. He said something was missing. Adam's missing something. He made woman, said, behold, it's very good. And then he rested. Right? Male and female, the, the climax of God's creative power coming together to fully represent his very image, he says it's very good. Because of that creative power, he says, I want you to do good works in my son's name because you're my work of art and I want you to express my creativity, my beautiful power to the world. It's like we're following in your father's footsteps. The apple shouldn't fall far from the tree. He creates us good. He does good things in us and then he wants you to extend that. And so because you are uniquely and personally equipped with the insignia of a perfect and holy God, you therefore are equipped with all that you need to perform good works. He's given you everything you need to do good works. What's the most essential piece of equipment for good works, Pastor? I'm so glad you asked. I thought you weren't going to. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? What's the next verse, 17? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Why hound on studying the scripture and knowing what the word of God says? So that we all may be equipped for every good work. As I was thinking about this, I feel like I just got this picture of what is equipment used for? And two different things came to my mind. I thought of safety equipment. You think of us being on a sports team and wearing shoulder pads. I'm speaking Louis' love language, rem reminiscing of the high school days, knocking somebody silly. 
putting that helmet on. I also thought of equipment being farm equipment, tractors. Why? To help you be more efficient at your work, your task at hand. So listen, you may be able to accomplish some things for Christ without his scripture, but guess what you risk? Being in danger and inefficiency. If you want to be efficiently and protected in all ways, you need to have the proper equipment. And, and we're told by Paul to Timothy in this, in this passage that the proper equipment is all Scripture being in us so that we can be prepared for all good works. The last part of verse 10, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. How many of you realize that God has a specific thing that he wants you to do? Now, we know that God has general things for all believers. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, cast out demons, he tells us in Luke, cleanse the lepers, heal the sick, raise the dead. But I think an overlooked part of God's masterpiece in created mankind is that we would bring to realization the glory of his creation. Let me say it this way, and I've alluded to this before, I've mentioned this before, God could in one moment wipe Satan out. But how much beautiful, how much more beautiful would it be for his creation that failed oh so miserably in the garden rise to the level where they can actually cut the head off the snake, the snake that tricked the human and mankind to begin with. God's master plan is that we would crush the head of the serpent just as Jesus who began that work We, the church now, prepared for good works, partake in Christ's death, his burial and resurrection. That's what? Faith, baptism, and resurrection is salvation. And through this ongoing transformation and being filled with the Holy Spirit and then overflowing of the gifts through our lives, in the kingdom constantly advancing, the glory of God coming from heaven to earth, on earth as it is in heaven, that's what we pray, we actually participate and I believe are going to inaugurate the final crushing of the head of the serpent, that is the devil. The church has an active role to bringing into reality the subjectivity, we see that in chapter 1 of Ephesians, all of those powers and principalities, we're subjecting them under the feet of Christ Jesus, and that's the glory of his creation. Now, in order for us as a church to operate and live like that and to do those good works, We have to have the Scripture in us. My question to you would be, how much are you reading His Word? Are you prepared to do your job as the bride of Christ? Now, I've been married once, and that will be it. I am still married, that's right. (laughs) Thanks, Julie. I don't know a whole lot about the whole wedding day and leading up to it, but I'll tell you one thing. I've, as a pastor, have married enough people to know that there's a whole lot of planning involved in getting ready for the groom. Are you with me? I just wonder if you've made your nail appointment. I wonder if you've got your hair appointment on the calendar. I wonder how many times you've tried on the dress. I wonder if you've practiced your makeup yet. Is everything in order for that day? 
God's story, and that's how the script goes, that through Jesus, holy God, yet holy man, the adversary would be dealt the final blow through the church who is seated in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, putting all things into subjection under his feet. Those good works which God the Father has for each of us to do, they were prepared for each of us before we were even born, that we would walk in them and glorify and magnify his name. You know, it's really something else to consider that the church, yet sinful, that's what chapter 2, 1 through 4 was about, right? Remember, all of your trespasses, all your sinfulness was included in the climax of God's story. He wrote you in. He didn't just save you and say, come along and watch the rock, grab some popcorn and watch as I handle everything. He actually wrote the church into the story. Beautiful. We were created into the plan to bring his kingdom to the earth, to bring to realization the subjection of Christ's enemies. That's chapter 1, verse 22. Now, we don't deserve it, but he freely gave it anyway. Now, we ought to walk in good works and start bashing in the head of Satan. Amen.